Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. Have you ever had a feeling that something bad was going to happen? Has it ever come true? On October 20th, 1966, a young Welsh girl named Errol May Jones recounted to her mother a dream in which she went to school and found it wasn't there. Something black had come down all over it, she said. The next day, Errol and 143 other people were killed when a pile of waste at a nearby coal mine collapsed and sent an avalanche of rubble into the village of Aberfan. After learning of Errol's dream, and others like hers, the psychiatrist John Barker teamed up with reporter Peter Fairley to establish a premonitions bureau at the Evening Standard newspaper to, quote, log premonitions as they occurred and see how many were borne out in reality. New Yorker staff writer Sam Knight tells the story of Barker's experiment in his new book, The Premonitions Bureau, a true account of death foretold. Barker hoped that the Bureau, which would receive more than 700 premonitions within 15 months, some of which proved true, might serve as a warning system for future calamities. But the gravest predictions that Barker received warned of his impending death. Sam Knight joins us from his home in London to talk about the Premonitions Bureau. Thanks for chatting with me, Sam. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. So you originally told the story of the Premonitions Bureau in a New Yorker article in 2019 at a much shorter length. So Mm -hmm. what made you want to revisit it and expand it and tell this story in all of its spooky glory? Wow. Okay. So I first heard about the Premonitions Bureau a while ago. It was back in 2013. So it's almost 10 years ago. And I kind of I came across just a couple of fragments about it. And and every so often I would find a tiny piece. And for a while there was just a little bit of scaffolding of a of a story, if you see what I mean. Just just a few pieces of of the puzzle. But over time I gathered a few more details and finally, you know, managed to persuade my my editor at the New Yorker to let me write an article about it. And it was in the course of that kind of phase of research for the magazine that I began to be more confident that I could find more information about it. Um, But it was, in fact, after the article appeared that a kind of breakthrough happened, which was that the the children of of John Barker, who was the the psychiatrist at the centre of the story, had never really known what their father did or what happened to him. And they read the article and they, thank goodness, responded positively. And that led to a kind of series of of conversations and interviews and trips into the attic to, to bring down what they could find. And I had another long, laborious kind of research attempt to track down some other people who were involved in the experiment. Um, so on the on the one hand, there was just a sort of a gradual accumulating of of interesting stuff to to tell the story, and I also got increasingly interested in some of the the sort of bigger ideas that underpin some of these questions and 
and at the kind of rational, more scientific end of it, if you like, and one of one of those is is about the nocebo effect, which we might talk about, and another is some interesting subjects in 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 neuroscience and about how the brain works and about how we're all wired to some extent to to predict and to to, to desperately figure out what's going to happen next and and why that's a kind of an entirely human thing to do although it obviously can stray into less rational kind of realms right i mean it's in all kinds of fields from psychology to philosophy and the occult and literature and everything in reading the book i was kind of struck by the mood of the 1960s and Mm. how you might recreate that what are people thinking i mean there's a lot of drugs, <laughs> for one. Yeah. But, you know, when people are writing in with their premonitions to the Bureau, like, what kind of water are they swimming in? It's funny. When I was when I was writing the book, the 60s felt close, and then it felt really far away at the same time as well. And, you know, Barker's born in 1924. Um, so he's in his early 40s, in the kind of mid-60s, when, which is when this story takes place. And he is this mid-20th century British intellectual who is kind of on the one hand part of all sorts of medical progress in psychiatry and and shifting from very kind of antiquated kind of forms of mental health to treating people with drugs and taking locks off the doors and seeking community treatment for people with you know psychosis and kind of serious mental illness and he's clearly kind of a progressive doctor in that sense and totally part of his his field's uh, advances, and yet he believes in ghosts and has a foot in the kind of the earlier part of the century, and I think particularly a British tradition of ghost hunting and an interest in in the paranormal. But he's he occupies these these two realms simultaneously, sometimes very easily, and sometimes they they, they come into kind of friction in his own life. So you do have this sense of a, of a time of of rapid progress and rapid change, both kind of obviously socially and politically, but also scientifically and and, and medically, and just and, and lots of things occurring, which I which I wonder what contributes to a to a sense of being open to the impossible. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing that the the newspaper reporter he teams up with, Peter Fairley, was simultaneously running a premonitions bureau and also covering the space race. You know, they just seem yeah. at total odds with each other for some reason. Totally. And and also he's covering the space race, not in like a casual way. He was one of the best connected reporters in the in the Soviet space program. You know, he's doing really kind of good, proper interviews with people in the in, in, in the Apollo program. And also he's, yeah, sure, let's do a premonitions bureau at the same time. There's a kind of an intellectual kind of voraciousness on the on the part of both of them that that means that they they could take these subjects alongside each other, which I, which which I think feels very unfamiliar to now. I mean, my my sense, and I'm straying a bit here, is that later it's in the 1970s that there's a real reaction to the paranormal and the occult, and a sense that this is actually dangerous and this shouldn't be entertained in serious universities and by serious people, and there's a kind of cultural backlash both in the UK and in the US against this this form of thinking yeah at the time though it proved enormously popular and within 
hours, minutes of making the call, you know, the Premonitions Bureau had just like stacks of, of entries. So what was that like? What were the kinds of things that people were sending in? And, you know, very quickly, Barker and Fairley zero in on on two percipients, as they call them. You know, what distinguished these two from from the rest, from the slush pile, I guess? So after the Aberfan disaster, Barker got about 70 solid feeling premonitions, he thought, of which about 27 or 28, I think, had been independently verified. So someone else had told them about their premonition before the disaster occurred, not just someone after the fact saying, oh my God, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. And Barker kind of sorted the different premonitions into different categories. For some reason, that, and I haven't really quite been able to get to the bottom of it, he was particularly interested in Seven, whose visions of a disaster or something bad occurring were accompanied by physical symptoms as well. So a headache, a tightening in the throat, a feeling of depression or lethargy. I, I don't know whether that's because he was a practicing psychiatrist dealing with people with severe mental illness kind of every day, whether he was kind of drawn to people with a physical corollary of what was happening, I don't know. But the two people that we might talk about, Kathleen Middleton, who was known by everyone as Miss Middleton, and Alan Hencher, were both in that subgroup of people who who experienced premonitions at the same time as a kind of physical side effect as well. And what did Barker think people were sensing? You know, when Alan Hensher writes in and predicts the Aberfan disaster or something else, what does he think he's experiencing? Yeah. Barker had sort of two ways of talking about this. One was a comparison with twins. Oddly, I have I have twin I have twin sons. Uh, there is this idea that if a a twin is involved in a car crash hundreds of miles away, the other twin might feel something or sense that. And I think many people who would describe themselves as rational would accept that as, yeah, like, why not? They're twins. They might have some kind of uncanny uh, feeling. And Barker used that example to suggest that, well, if that's not impossible between twins across distance, why shouldn't that be possible across time? and that you could have what he called a sympathetic projection of pain that was able to travel through time. That was one way that he talked about it. The other way was in keeping with, I guess, very loosely a kind of Jungian notion of time. And this was, again, kind of popular in intellectual currents in the kind of mid-20th century, that we have different versions of time. We have an individual version of time, the time that you and I are, are living through, and we might perceive that individually slightly differently. And then there might be a collective sense of time that might have a slightly longer version of the present that kind of swooshes a bit into the future and a bit into the past. And that those, you have kind of concurrent times. I'm not explaining this very well at all. <laughs> You know, I I don't know that you could really explain it very well. <laughs> it's 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 squishy and it's kind of uncanny, yeah. as you said. You know, yeah, yeah. Fairly actually described it very well in a radio interview that he gave, 
and you alluded to it in your introduction of knowing. You know. This isn't like a vague feeling. This isn't a kind of like, ah, oh, maybe something. This is like, ah, oh, you know. And it's not a comfortable feeling. You know deep down that something is going to occur and you don't know how you know. And you don't know what to do with that that knowledge, if it is knowledge. It reminds me a little bit of where you describe um, second sight mm. in the Outer Hebrides and how uh, when people are on the islands, it's a very common occurrence, or it used to be anyway. It's sort of like declining as we enter the present, maybe mm -hmm. as people have other explanations for why things happen. But there was an interesting case of, of a pair of men, I think, who leave the isles go away mm. don't really experience second sight when they're gone but as soon as they land they experience it and they're like oh, crap yeah <laughs> not this again yeah. I, I i find that really telling that this is in a sense a social phenomenon and it can become normalized in a community like other forms of magical thinking even dare i say it religious thinking you know that this is something that can can take hold as a shared social belief. And in fact, I, I thought about the work of, he's called Martin Martin uh, in the 17th century, this kind of general study of life and culture in the Outer Hebrides in which he writes about second sight in some detail. I thought about that a lot writing the book because I came to think of the Premonitions Bureau a bit like a Hebridean island, a community of people who kind of shared a belief that there was a possibility to have a glimpse of the future or insights into the future. And then that becomes a, a, a reinforcing belief in that, in that group of people. And it's something that occurs in forms of illness as well. Again, in the sixties, people kind of identified that you could have social forms of illness. It was called you know, an idiom of distress where a, a group of people might succumb to a similar symptom or kind of mental state. Yeah, I mean, some of the things that Hensher and Middleton and definitely many of the others wrote in, I mean, they seem like pure luck, you know, like planes yeah. crashed a lot. So eventually, yeah. like, you'll predict a plane crash and, and one will happen. But like, there's one vision in particular that Middleton has of a train crash and then the words charring cross. Yeah. That for me are a, a bit harder to explain. Yeah, I don't know. What you, I don't know what you do with that. You know, I write magazine stories for you know for a living people ask you know what are you working on and you kind of and you say and you sort of develop a kind of one or two sentence description of of what you're working on at the time and you develop pretty quickly a sense of whether people are interested in that <laughs> and and this has been an interesting thing to work on because I kind of say oh you know you know what do you oh what's your you know what's the what's the book about and I say oh it's a story about a psychiatrist who kind of came to think that some people could see the future and normally at that point I just kind of get ejected from the conversation when when people then start telling you about the weird inexplicable things that have happened to them in their life and and I've just sort of come over time to to think that many people have just one or one or two things in their life that they just can't quite make peace with or don't fit into a rational explanation they can't explain it away and we make our peace with that we kind of we live with that we live complicated lives strange things happen coincidences happen of course they do and and most of us can kind of accommodate that within an otherwise kind of rational existence and and other people can't let it alone they need to 
scratch at that and figure out what's going on there. Have you ever had any one of those feelings? You know, I I haven't. And I feel kind of, I feel like that's maybe a disappointing answer, but I also, I, I really tried to to write this book almost like I'd write about anything else with, you know, what I hope is kind of like respectful interest rather than desperately wanting people to think a certain thing or believe a certain thing. I mean, when I, when you come across stories of this kind, there's normally an agenda to make you believe something or change your mind. And I didn't really want to do that. It's interesting because Barker and Fairley both had those feelings. Yeah. To different extents, right? And I like I, I got the sense that Barker is, as you say, you know, a man with an agenda. I wasn't so sure about Fairley. He just kind of seemed to be along for the ride. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think he was you know, they were they were at different stages of their lives and their careers. You know, Fairley was in his late thirties. He was the kind of hotshot space reporter for a big London newspaper. He then went on to present the moon landings on on British television. He was kind of flying. Whereas Barker was a clearly very intelligent, talented psychiatrist who was given control of a large mental hospital at the age of 38 and couldn't handle it um, and had, you know, a form of breakdown and was then demoted to still a senior, but nonetheless not running another mental hospital outside Shrewsbury, which was kind of a cul-de-sac. It was kind of a dead end, a mental hospital in a rural part of the country. He's someone who'd been to Cambridge University and George's Medical School in London and clearly had real hopes and ambitions to be an influential doctor and scientist. And I think he you know, he felt that time was against him in some way. I don't know, there was, there, was, there was a hunger to prove himself that I think meant that he had obviously much more riding on this experiment and also meant that I think that he took risks and he was in a hurry. Yeah, I mean, this is also the same time where he is writing, still researching and, and promoting this book, Scared to Death, which is like yeah. related, but not exactly the same as premon. I guess they're just like very specific premonitions in some ways about cases in which people have a, a very strong feeling that they're going to die and then they die. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you see that book connecting to the project of the Premonitions Bureau? So, you know, there's like a chronological way to answer that question, which is in, you know, 1963, Barker comes across a curious letter in the British Medical Journal from some doctors in a small hospital in Labrador, of all places in Canada, describing a woman who died after a very routine minor piece of surgery um, and then went into shock and died, but from no kind of obvious underlying reason why. And then it transpired after she died that She'd been told by a fortune teller that she was going to die at the age of 43 and she'd turned 43 the previous week and had become convinced that that she wouldn't survive this this minor um, procedure. And Barker saw this, saw this letter and in his kind of intellectual kind of uh, hunger and kind of appetite, he, he seized on this as a kind of an interesting thing to look into and 
started a correspondence with these doctors in Canada, put out a call for kind of similar cases in the British Medical Journal, a bunch of people sent stuff in, and then he was kind of on his way to to writing this book, Scared to Death. You know, the SIBO effect was only named in 1961. The idea of whether telling somebody that they're going to die hastens their demise or kind of has a physiological component was a kind of interesting question in its own right. And it's only kind of as the project developed that I think it kind of morphed into bigger questions of, of time and premonitions and, and can people see things before they happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk more about the nocebo effect? It is the opposite of the placebo effect, but it's a lot more interesting and a lot less studied, I think, than the placebo effect for obvious reasons that you like can't intentionally hurt people in a medical setting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, the placebo effect, you know, got its name in 1961. It was given to it by a British doctor and pharmaceutical executive called Walter Kennedy. It's exactly as you describe. It's if I give you an inert sugar pill, like I might do if I was studying the placebo effect, uh, but I say to you, uh, as some people, when they take this, they get a kind of, you know, a, a dry mouth and they feel a little bit sick, but most people are fine. You're you're much more likely to develop that that symptom. And Walter Kennedy was heavily involved in in drug trials and he observed this phenomenon of people developing side effects basically by by suggestion. Um, and so he named the nocebo effect in a very short paper and sort of said, look, uh, we see this all the time. I'm not claiming anything original here, but let's give this thing a name. One of the interesting and tragic things about Walter Kennedy is he was involved in the, the marketing of a drug called thalidomide, which wasn't tested um, in the way that it should have been, in particular, was never tested on pregnant women, despite being marketed as a cure for morning sickness. And it led to the death and disfigurement of of, of thousands of children. Um, the nocebo effect is, as you say, hard to study, because it's something that exists at the kind of edges of things. And if you announce a medical experiment to try and induce suffering in people, then it's hard to get that past an ethics board. But nonetheless, it's got a kind of fairly devoted band of researchers. And I think it's not something that doctors disagree with or question. I think they live with it. They live with it every day um, in terms of how you frame talking to patients about their conditions, how you give people diagnosis. And one of the kind of haunting examples that stays with me is, you know, a melanoma clinic in Australia in the 1970s, people seemingly dying before their cancer symptoms had advanced far enough because they'd been given, you know, as it was proverbially known, you know, a death sentence of a cancer diagnosis. Um, but this question of whether the nocebo effect could be fatal and whether someone could be frightened to death was actually studied a little bit earlier by a very distinguished Dr. Walter Cannon at Harvard, and he called it the voodoo death in 1944, the idea that some societies you could put a hex on someone or a curse on someone, then that would bring about their death, even though they were healthy. I think it's fascinating that so many scientists and psychologists and writers in general were drawn in this time period to study this sort of like Mm. liminal space. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like we've lost something by closing that space? 
by saying like, oh, no, 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 this guy, this is all just a cult. Scared to death, shelve it, not in psychology, but in the occult section. Yeah, that's really interesting. And relatively late in my research for the book, I came across a, a doctor, a Harvard, a neurologist called Martin Samuels. And he very kindly put me onto the work of a, a psychiatrist called George Engel, who was practicing at exactly the same time as Barker and was also very interested in the nocebo effect and people being scared to death. And he made his own collection of sudden inexplicable deaths in the 50s and 60s. And in the early 1980s, he actually published a, a pivotal paper suggesting a much broader and humane way of thinking about medicine that took into account people's mental health alongside their physical health and the environment in which they were raised and were living and proposed a much broader and kind of eucumenical way of thinking about our health, which I feel is really intellectually robust and kind of really hard to disagree with. And I was just struck that he worked on almost exactly the same questions as as Barker, but without his stridency and without his determination to change people's minds as far as he wanted to change them, if you see what I mean. And so, well, I think, you know, Engel remains a, a distinguished kind of figure. His work had real influence. Barker and I think other people who were at least more outspoken in their acceptance of uh, impossible things, you know, made their case harder by 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 being so. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it also doesn't help that Barker was haunted, I suppose, by his own work. I guess that's how I I want to read the you know the fact that his own death was predicted in a very tragic way. I think by Ms. Middleton, and he did die, before you know, before seeing out the end of the premonition. Before, era. before his, before his time yeah. to use her. Yeah, uh, yes, yes. And I first came across that in a, in a book that was written in the nineteen seventies. There was a few pages about the bureau and the writer had been to this house in South London where Jennifer Preston, who was the person who pulled all the predictions together and kind of kept them in filing cabinets according to the kind of different categories that they came into. He, This writer went to see her in her house surrounded by these premonitions. And in this, in a few pages of this book, he kind of casually mentions, oh, and, you know, Barker himself, you know, his death was predicted by two of the people who took part in the experiment. And I, you know, kind of viscerally kind of, stumbled on that and had to find out what was what was behind that and to the best extent I could try and think about Barker's state of mind and his awareness of being sucked so deeply into the subjects of his research and it was it was only after his family very generously shared some audio recordings and some postcards and letters that he he wrote towards the end of his life that it was obvious that he was aware of the awfulness, but also the, you know, fascination for him of being caught up in that circumstance. We have links to Sam Knight's new book, The Premonitions Bureau, A True Account of Death Foretold, 
as well as the article that started it all. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Thank you.